0: and turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 47. Again, we're going to cover two chapters, one is short. These final messages that Jeremiah gives to the nations um, are, um, as we said, kind of an appendix. And as you read through them, they may start to sound the same, and you wonder, what does this mean for us? But I think if you'll stick with me, you'll see there's a lot of good meat in here uh, for us today. We'll read Jeremiah chapter 47 and 48. This is God's Word. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh struck down Gaza. Thus says the Lord Behold, waters are rising out of the north and shall become an overflowing torrent. They shall overflow the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. Men shall cry out, and every inhabitant of the land shall wail at the noise of the stamping of the hoofs of his stallions, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of their wheels. The fathers look not back to their children, so feeble are their hands because of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper that remains. For the Lord is destroying the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaftor. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon has perished. O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourselves? Ah, sword of the Lord, how long till you are quiet? Put yourself into your scabbard, rest and be still. How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it a charge? Against Ashkelon and against the seashore, he has appointed it. Concerning Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel Woe to Nebo, for it is laid waste. Kiriathim is put to shame, it is taken. The fortress is put to shame and broken down. The renown of Moab is no more. In Heshbon they plan disaster against her. Come, let us cut her off from being a nation. You also, O Madmeen, shall be brought to silence. The sword shall pursue you. A voice, a cry from Horonaim, Naim, desolation and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have made a cry. For at the ascent of Luhith they have gone up weeping. For at the descent of Horonaim they have heard the distressed cry of destruction. Flee, save yourselves, you will be like a juniper in the desert. For because you trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken. And Kimosh shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. The destroyer shall come upon every city and no city shall escape. The valley shall perish and the plain shall be destroyed as the Lord has spoken. Give wings to Moab, for she would fly away. Her city shall become a desolation with no inhabitant in them. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from bloodshed. Moab has been at ease from his youth and has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile, so that his taste remains in him and his scent is not changed. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall send to him pourers who will pour him, and empty his vessels and break his jars in pieces. Then Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh, And as the house of Israel was ashamed at Bethel, their confidence. How do you say we are heroes and mighty men of war? The destroyer of Moab and his cities has come up, and the choicest of his young men have gone down to slaughter, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. The calamity of Moab is near at hand, and his affliction hastens swiftly. Grieve for him, all you who are around him, and all who know his name. Say how the mighty scepter is broken, the glorious staff. Come down from your glory and sit on the parched ground, O inhabitant of Debon. For the destroyer of Moab has come up against you. He has destroyed your strongholds. Stand by the way and watch, O inhabitant of Eruer. Ask him who flees and her who escapes. Say, what has happened? Moab is put to shame, for it is broken. Wail and cry. Tell it beside the Arnon that Moab is laid waste. Judgment has come upon the tableland, upon Holon, Jazah, and Mephathath, and Dibon, and Nebo, and Diblathaim, and Kiriathim, and Beth Gamul, and Beth Meon, and Kirioth, and Basra, and all the cities of the land of Moab, far and near. The horn of Moab is cut off and his arm is broken, declares the Lord. Make him drunk because he magnified himself against the Lord so that Moab shall wallow in his vomit and he too shall be held in derision. Was not Israel a derision to you? Was he found among thieves that wherever you spoke of him you wagged your head? Leave the cities and dwell in the rock, O inhabitants of Moab. Be like the dove that nests in the side of the mouth of the gorge. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his loftiness, his pride, and his arrogance, and the haughtiness of his heart. I know his insolence, declares the Lord. His boasts are false. His deeds are false. Therefore, I wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab, for the men of Kir Haraseth. I mourn. More than for Jazir, I weep for you, O vine of Sibma. Your branches passed over the sea. reached to the sea of Jazir. On On your summer fruits and your grapes, the destroyer has fallen. Gladness and joy have been taken away from the fruitful land of Moab. I have made the wine cease from the wine presses. No one treads them with shouts of joy. The shouting is not the shout of joy. From the outcry at Heshbon... Even to, to Elaleh, Elale, as far as Jahaz, they utter their voice. From Zoar to Horonaim and Eglath Shelashia, for the waters of Nimrim also have become de- desolate. And I will bring to an end in Moab, declares the Lord, him who offers sacrifice in the high place and makes offerings to his God. Therefore my heart moans for Moab like a flute, and my heart moans like a flute for the men of Kir Haraseth. Therefore the riches they gained have perished. For every head is shaved and every beard cut off, and all the hands are gashes, and around the waist is sackcloth. And all the housetops of Moab and in the squares there is nothing but lamentation, for I have broken Moab like a vessel for which no one cares, declares the Lord. How it is broken, how they wail, how Moab has turned his back in shame. So Moab has become a derision and a horror. To all that are around him. For thus says the Lord. Behold one shall fly swiftly like an eagle. And spread his wings against Moab. The cities shall be taken. And the strongholds seized. The heart of the warriors of Moab. Shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. Moab shall be destroyed. And be no longer a people. Because he magnified himself against the Lord. Terror. Pit. And snare are before you, O inhabitant of Moab, declares the Lord. He who flees from the terror shall fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For I will bring these upon Moab. The year of their punishment, declares the Lord. And the shadow of Heshbon fugitives stop without strength. For fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the house of Sihon. It has destroyed the forehead of Moab, the crown of the sons of Tumult. Woe to you, O Moab! The people of Chemosh are undone, for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters into captivity. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far is the judgment on Moab. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even words that we wonder words spoken to countries that don't even exist anymore, uh, words of judgment that seem so heavy and harsh. Uh, Lord, what would you say to us today? Would you open our ears now and cause us to see wonderful things in your law? Would you give us insight and help us understand not just what is here, but what it is for us? Speak your word to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, we started this messages to the nations, this appendix of sorts uh, from Jeremiah the prophet to the various nations around. You remember from chapter 1, Jeremiah had been appointed as a prophet to the nations and here he is fulfilling that uh, part of that that role. And the track, so to speak, of these messages moves from Egypt now to the northeast and it it follows uh, pretty closely the, the geography of the land. So, if you think of a modern map today, up above Egypt is Israel and uh, on the um, western side is, is Gaza, uh, the, under the Palestinian Authority, was called the Gaza Strip. On the eastern side is uh, Jordan. And so, roughly, that's where these two, these two countries would have been that he speaks to in this particular message. The message to the nations is important for us to think about today because it demonstrates that God rules over all nations. That's one of the messages that continues. It's, it's been throughout the, the book of Jeremiah, but continues to resound in these, these final messages, is that there is a universality of his judgment that is coming, that no nation shall escape. And yet when we consider that with that, is his plan of salvation being proclaimed to every nation, tribe, and tongue. We see both messages of warning and messages of hope. The warning is to all, and so is the message of salvation. Whether it's the world's superpowers or the favorite tourist traps or the countries that when they're called out, you have no idea where on the map to find them, God rules over all nations. But he has also promised not only to judge them, but that the good news would be preached among all nations, that the message would go to all nations. Now, neither one of these countries exists anymore. We know where they were on the map, but the countries themselves are gone. The peoples from these two people groups have been assimilated into the ethnic peoples of the Middle East. The legacies of both countries aren't great. I mean, I don't know the last time I saw a showing at a museum of Philistine art or read any great uh, Moabite philosopher or or anything like that. There doesn't seem to be any huge lasting legacy from either one of these people groups. But while this may emphasize the judgment that fell upon them, it doesn't mean that the people are insignificant or didn't matter. The Lord made them and the Lord has for them uh, messages of judgment because they have rejected him. You notice that's there, there's uh, the, the message to Philistia doesn't really have a list of crimes, it's just a plain message of, of, of judgment. But we know many of the crimes of Philistia. Moab has a lot of the lists, but you know, in there are a number of things. But we, we, you know, you hear it resounding over and over again. There is this rejection of the Lord, and it is an affront to him, and how they have gone over out after uh, other gods. It's easy for us as we look back to have chronological snobbery you know we kind of look down our noses at people in the Old Testament and we think you know how could they how could they how could they be so hard-hearted how could they be so naive but we sin in the same manners Uh, we call it different things but we have idols in our own hearts we've seen this again and again throughout the book of Jeremiah and just as we deserve the same judgment as they we are saved in the same way they were by grace alone so instead of being tempted to look down our noses as we look at an old passage like this may we instead humbly ask the lord to open our eyes that we might see ourselves in this text that we might prayerfully ask for conviction to repent where needed and for gratefulness for the fact that in his good covenant promises we have now been brought in as uh, sons and daughters adopted through jesus christ so looking at chapter 47 first uh, we know the Philistines as the annoying neighbor to the west of Israel. Every child who has set foot in a Sunday school classroom knows of the Philistine giant Goliath and the taunts that he and the other Philistines made against the people of Israel. And in this message, the list of grievances aren't listed, as I mentioned, uh, but we know them from other passages. There are uh, There's a lot of Old Testament history where we can see That the Philistines went after the people of God. But God's judgment is ultimately because they reject Yahweh, because they are idolaters. Now, Jeremiah is not the only prophet who speaks against the Philistines. Amos, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Zechariah all had messages against this nation. It was a nation uh, where. you know, it was, it was uh, the, the people are called the people of Kaphtor. They were uh, a people that fled what is now Crete uh, and other Greek islands. And we don't know why. Uh, sociologists, historians uh, uh, don't know why that they, uh, they fled and came here but they came to set up a new life and they were, they were scrappers from the very beginning. They were always fighting for their stake of the land and they remained that, that way at least toward Israel until King David came along. He was really the first to bring them into submission and then we ultimately see their disappearance from history about 150 B.C. Ashkelon, one of the cities that's mentioned here, is still in Israel today. And if you pay attention to the news, anytime there are rocket attacks that come out of Gaza... They usually land in Ashkelon. You'll hear Ashkelon and Ashdod, the city to the north, both mentioned. Both of those cities are there to this day. The description of the attack in chapter 47 is, is one of overwhelming defeat. It's just this, you know, seven short verses of just Pharaoh steamrolling the land. And it begins with this metaphor of a river, very similar to the one that was used in the message to Egypt of the Nile, that this force would come in and it would be like a river rising uh, to overtake the land. When I was a young guy, I was in Boy Scouts and we did a lot of canoe trips uh, down rivers in central Georgia. And I remember particularly the Okmulgee River, that's the one that we made the most trips down. And on one particular trip, as we were putting into the water, uh, the The sirens from the dam went off, and there was a uh, a bit of a discussion among the adult leaders whether we should go or whether we should get out of there and There was a the decision to go, so we put in, but by the time the last boats put in the last boat being the one I was in, the water had risen quite a bit um, it was It was interesting to watch how. You could see the water change. as the It didn't come like in the movies, you know, this big wave coming down the, 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 the banks of the river. But it just started rising slowly and then started moving around things that were in the river that weren't really causing ripples. And the torrents, it began to twist and so forth. And by the time we got in, it was so rough that our boat was swamped. Ended up being kind of a heroin rescue that that uh, that we got out of there. But when I read the words of this passage, that's the image that I have in mind. This powerful force of water. That usually we think of water as tame or you know recreational. We go swimming in it. But once water has the upper hand, whether it's a hurricane or the sea waves or in this case a rising river, we realize that we are powerless to stand against it. It will overtake whatever it wants in its path without prejudice. That's the picture of this army that is going to do this to the land of the Philistines. Verse 2, the people will cry out, they will wail. Horses and chariots will come so swiftly. Fathers can't even react quickly enough, verse 3 says, to save their own children. But then in verse 4, we see the source of all of this, that this is the day that is coming, a euphemism for the day of the Lord, a day of judgment and then the next sentence makes it unquestionable for the lord is destroying the philistines. Now we know from verse 1 that it was Pharaoh, doesn't say which Pharaoh but likely Pharaoh Necho II, who had already battled uh, Israel and uh, up at Megiddo, that's when Josiah was killed, and it was on his way back that he kind of raised the land of Gaza. Babylon came later and some think that because it's this river from the north uh, describing an army from the north that they that they assume it was Babylon. But since the text tells us it was Pharaoh, I think this is the event that's being described here. But both countries attacked Philistia. What's most notable, though, is that it's the Lord's doing. That's the point of the text. It is the Lord who does this. It is swift, it is awful, and it is extensive. It was ultimately the Lord's doing. And the final verse makes that clear in this rhetorical question. How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it a charge? Against Ashkelon and against the seashore, he has appointed it. And so the Lord reigns over the nations. His charge will go forth, go, go forth and go no farther <laughs> than he has appointed. Uh, it will accomplish all of his purposes in his perfect timing. And he promises this to the Philistines on this, on this day. Now, chapter 48, the message to Moab. It's the same, although noticeably longer. You'll notice it's much longer than the message to the Philistines, and many have wondered why. The only longer message to the nations is the one to Babylon. It's the longest. We get that. Babylon was kind of the big enemy at the time, so it's reserved to the end, and it is the longest. But why why is Moab the longest? Well, we're not really told. It, it doesn't seem very significant in our own understanding of the history of people and nations in this, at this point in history, but um, the, the, the message against Moab is is significant when we consider it, its history with the people of Israel. And once again, we see it's not only Jeremiah who speaks against Moab, but Amos, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, and especially Isaiah have messages against the people of of Moab, I say Isaiah especially because there are a number of passages that are very similar between in wording uh, and, and in promise between what Isaiah had to say and what Jeremiah had to say. If you go back later and read Jeremiah fifteen and sixteen after reading chapter forty eight of uh, sorry Isaiah fifteen and sixteen after reading Jeremiah forty eight, you'll see many of those similarities. The most famous Moabite might be Ruth, right? David's uh, grandmother. Uh, and we we know the story of her and how the Lord delivered her. This is a continual reminder for us as we look at any passage in the Old Testament that while God set his affections upon Israel, that he called them out and chose them to be his people. He revealed himself to them through the giving of the law. He sent to him, to them his prophets, and especially it was through them that the Messiah came, that his heart for other peoples is still pervasive that God loves nations, tribes, and tongues. It's not only that Jesus was born as a Jew from a Moabite ancestor, Ruth, as a son of David, he was a descendant there, but also that he laid down his life so that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue might be redeemed. Now, the sins of Philistia weren't listed, but the sins of Moab are. We see a lot here. And we don't have time to to do through this text what we would normally do in verse by verse. So I'm going to do themes instead so that we can finish before 1 o'clock today. uh, I promise. Now, of all the sins that are listed, the one that stands out the most is is her pride. Uh, She's called out for her pride. Uh, She trusted in her own resources, her own ability. She was wealthy. Uh, She uh, had a great military at one point in history. Uh, she mocked the nation of Israel and her suffering. She's called out for that. Uh, ultimately, she defied the Lord God in idolatry. But verse 29 is really the pinnacle of the description of her sinful condition. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his loftiness, his pride, and his arrogance, and the haughtiness of his heart. Uh, six different synonyms there for pride, or six different words used for pride uh, to describe what is clearly a Uh, something God is wanting to address among the people. Now, the sins are mentioned, but the details of the Acts aren't. We have to go to other passages in the Old Testament to find that out. And we won't do all of that, but I'll just mention a few uh, for context. One was when Israel was coming into the promised land the first time, out of the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 2, we see the Lord instructed them to... Seek to go through Moab. He said, don't take the land. I've already given that to Lot. Don't take the land. Uh, Don't fight with the king. Seek passage to go through the land. And initially, the Moabites in the south allowed the Israelites to pass. But as they worked their way northward, King Sihon of Heshbon refused, and they battled there at Jahaz. All those places and people are mentioned in this text. That's referring back to Deuteronomy 2. And the Lord gave the victory to his people, but as we know, the sins of Moab would not go unpunished. They weren't the only ones Uh, Edom was also dealt with for not allowing Israel to pass. Later on, the king of Moab, Balak, summoned Balaam, the prophet or seer, to curse or bring down curses on Israel because he saw the, the vast number of the Israelites there to the west. And he said that they would lick up Moab as the ox licks up the grass in the field. There's a visual image for us, uh, right? If you've ever seen a cow in the field chewing, uh, that's what the king thought. And so he hired Balaam as a prophet uh, to, uh, to speak down curses. Now, we probably remember Balaam most for being the one who got the message from the donkey, the talking donkey, right? think in back to Sunday school lessons. But what was the bigger issue here is that Balaam actually spoke blessings upon Israel instead of curses. And in his defense, he said to King Balak, Behold, I have come to you. How Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. And this whole episode in Numbers 22 to 24 recounts the the going back and forth between uh, Moab and Israel. And the point is is that Moab had this list of indictable crimes. These are just a few against God's people, Uh, in part for which he is judging them. It's ultimately their affront to him. That's the ultimate crime, that they have rejected him. Uh, And then their pride, that's the, the big sin that is listed that is now to be corrected. Jeremiah, in the way that he writes... Carries us through the land through geography uh, of the land, all those names that I butchered, uh, trying to pronounce uh, those are mostly cities or kings that were represented uh, areas that that the Jews would have known, uh, having set just uh, you know to the west of them it being Jordan to the to the east. The Moabites were enemies of Israel for most of their history. There were some tr- treaties and so forth that they made, including the one where uh, we see in, in Jeremiah that where Moab sent a delegation to, to Jerusalem before Babylon attacked. But most of all, for the most part, they were, they were enemies. We know that they were long-distance cousins uh, of Israel as well. They, Moabites were the sons of Lot. And if you remember, either in your Bible reading plan a few weeks ago in Genesis 19, that horrid story... Uh, its incestuous origin or back when we studied Genesis, that's how Moab came into existence. So more than 20 cities, more than 20 locations are mentioned to make the point that is expressed or summarized in verse 8. The destroyer shall come upon every city and no city shall escape. The Lord has spoken. That's the point. He carries us through this, you know, we don't read it that way, but it would be like someone saying, you know, from Miami to D.C. to New York to L.A., you know, it's this visual map in your head. We all see those cities in our map and realize, you know, we're moving north and across the country. That's what he's doing here through the land of Moab to make this point. No city shall go unpunished. In addition to the geography of the land being highlighted, we also see the reference to their idolatry. Their national god is Chemosh. Uh, he, he is mentioned here a number of times. Uh, he was not only an offense to God as, as an idol, uh, as, a, as a non-existent god, um, but he became a stumbling block to the people of Israel throughout their history. In Numbers 25, we read of Moabites who, who lured Israelites into the worship of their gods. Solomon married Moabite women who actually set up an altar to Chemosh in Jerusalem, 1 Kings 11. Notably, though, God lists Chemosh among other pagan gods as one of the reasons for the dividing of the northern and southern kingdom of Israel and Judah in 1 Kings 11.33. So all of these things are stacked up not the way I've just described them to you, but through going through the land, through naming the cities, the gods, and so forth. This is what Jeremiah is doing. He's, he's, he's stacking up the indictment against Moab. But like I've said, it's really their pride that is standing out. And pride, um, you know, it, it can emerge in a number of ways. It certainly emerges as boasting, and we see an account of that. We know that that, that uh, when Israel was down, that's one of the things that they did. But another way it can be manifest is in complacency, and that's one of the ways that Jeremiah describes Moab here. He uses an image that they could easily understand, that of their winemaking. Moab was known for their wine. I always find it interesting when you visit countries and you get to know people, that you listen and everybody, this is, this is ours. This is ours, you know. Um, my mind is just going blank hummus. There we go, falafel. you go into the Middle East, uh, you know it, it, really from parts of Europe all the way over to the Middle East, and you eat this food and when you go and visit this is ours we we, we invented this, everybody claims this is what we made, and the same is true for wine, you know most Americans think. Italy is really wine country. When we uh, lived in Cyprus, it was we were told Cyprus was. there's a wine museum. I always took people to the wine museum because there was so much history there. But one of the things that they're, this is their claim, uh, they have DNA from pottery that dates wine further back to Cyprus than any other nation out there. Well, I'm sure if we try, I haven't been to, to, to Jordan, uh, but if I traveled there, if there's a Moabite uh, 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 museum I'm sure that there's someone there claiming the same thing. So people are very proud about this, and Moab was proud for her winemaking. So after describing the destruction that's coming through uh, uh, the Babylonian army, he states how Moab has been at ease from his youth. Look in verse 11. Moab has been at ease from his youth and has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor... Has he gone into exile? So his taste remains in him and his scent is not changed. Now, I realize in reading that, that just sounds like poetic something for nothing. It does like, what do you mean his scent has not changed? Well, all of this is alluding to the winemaking process. The dregs that settled is that sediment after the, the, the grapes were juiced. Uh, they would put it into pottery and usually underground where it could be kept at a consistent temperature and the sediment would settle. But if it sat for too long, it would sour and it would ultimately become rancid. And so the winemakers knew how long it needed to sit before it needed to go through a purification process. And the purification process that they used at this point was to pour the new wine into another vessel. So from vessel to vessel, but they would pour it very carefully so as not to include the sediment that was in the bottom. That's what they wanted to purify out. And so... This is what is being described here by Jeremiah, that this purification process has not been experienced by Moab. Because they have been affluent, they have become proud, they have not been purified, and now they are becoming complacent and rancid. They are useless, worthless. And so, in judgment, an army is coming. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall send to him pourers who will pour. You guys need to be purified? Well, it's not going to look like your purification process. I'm going to send people professionally to pour you out. And then, not only am I going to empty your jars, not like purified wine, I'm going to smash them. You know, It's just this utter destruction. Break his jars in pieces. Then Moab shall be ashamed of Kamosh, their national god. And so the the metaphor of winemaking is really throughout the chapter. We see it again in verse 26 when Moab is pictured as being humiliated, lying in his own vomit. Actually, he's not lying. He's writhing or wallowing in his own vomit. He's trying to get up. He's inebriated physically, can't get up because he's been made to drink the cup of God's judgment, his wrath. So pride, idolatry only being worsened now by their affluence and prosperity in their economic and military endeavors. They say in verse 14, we are heroes and mighty men of war. They really thought something of themselves. In verse 18, they were told that they were going to be sitting on parched ground. And that image is when uh, uh, militaries were conquered, armies were conquered, uh, the, the soldiers would be forced to, often stripped, and forced to sit on the ground and then tied up and taken back into captivity. And so that's the picture that's being described here. Uh, verse 25 describes them as having their horn cut off. That's the picture of an animal losing its, its, its honor, in a sense, its source of power. Their wealth was something also they took great pride in after King David had brought them into subjection the Moabites had to pay a tribute to the king of Israel. And so later, one of those tributes is recorded. King Jehoshaphat received a tribute from Moab in the amount of 100,000 sheep and the wool of 100,000 rams. This is in Second Kings 3 and 4. So I don't even know how to picture that. You know, I've seen... Uh, 100, 200, 300 head of cattle, or something like that, but you know, a thousand sheep and the wool of a thousand rams. I mean, there was great affluence in the land of Moab, and they took their pride in that. So, for all their sins, including the treatment of God's people, but especially for their pride and idolatry, God would now send his judgment. It's coming in the form of Babylon. Now, Babylon's never named here, but in verse 40, we see a hint. That this is who's coming uh, with the the imagery of the eagle, which has been used in other places to describe Babylon, and then in verse 44, he who flees from the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For I will bring these things upon Moab, the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. And so there's this picture of no one can escape. You think you you've gotten out of the, the the terror and you fall into the pit. You think you get out of the pit. You're going to get caught in a snare. You're not going to escape the sure judgment of God. And yet, in the end, in the very last verse, we see these words, yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Walt Kaiser writes, the national god of Moab, Chemosh, is no match for Yahweh. Chemosh is, in fact, non-existent. But the point is that Moab will be destroyed as a nation for one key reason. It had defied Yahweh. But once again, the grace of God far outweighs all Moab's sin. So God promises that he will restore the fortunes of Moab in the days to come. Here is marvelous grace that is greater than all our sin. It's beyond explanation. It's beyond reason why God would make such a promise and plant the seed of hope for this people. But he does this in the midst of this message of judgment. And in many ways, this is a picture of the gospel. It is our, our own reality, our own experience that we see sin everywhere. We, we see every day, all the time, our sin, your sin, my sin, the sins of others, the effects of sin, and all that it bears in our world around us. The fruit of sin, broken relationships, distorted realities, physical infirmities, confusion, chaos, strife, and wars. We see the reality of sin in a world that had been created perfectly, but has now become wrecked so that the human race who seems to fall into a pit climbs out only to be caught in a snare. Yet we are not the only ones who are heartbroken by it all. Throughout the book of Jeremiah, we've seen Jeremiah known as the weeping prophet. It's not only Jeremiah who grieves, but God who grieves over the sin. We see in verse 31, God say, I wail, I cry out, I mourn. And the next verse, I weep for you. And the God who weeps for heaven over the sinfulness of those he created in his image brought this hope of restoration to its conclusion. In the sending of his son who put on flesh, who came as a man born as a descendant of Moab, as the son of David. He too wept over his people. He wept over the city of Jerusalem when he looked out across it, when he witnessed their sinfulness of pride and self-sufficiency. He wept over the wages of sin, which is death, when his friend Lazarus died. But our God doesn't just empathize with us and our God doesn't just pity us. Our God saves us. He bore the cross of our sin, yours and mine, the sin that he wept over, to pay its full penalty. He drank not only the, the wine of the Father's wrath, he, he drank it down to the dregs. He drank it all. He took it all so that through faith we might be forgiven, that we might be cleansed from all unrighteousness. And as a result, we now have the joy that comes from the new wine of the new covenant, a gladness of heart that comes through His shed blood, that we might know there is therefore now no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So these messages to Philistia and to Moab matter because we can be sure that the Lord will by no means clear the guilty, yet His promise of restoration is just as certain for those who believe in Him and fall on His mercy. The doxology at the end of Romans is a beautiful summation of what we've seen here in these two chapters today. So listen to it now. It says, Now to Him who is able to strengthen you, Way back then, in Moab and in Philistia, we now see the fruit of, the completion of, bringing in all nations, including us, who are trusting in him by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the the message of hope, not only that you will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, but that we as the guilty, uh, our punishment has been met and paid for in Christ. He drank the full wrath. We, are, we bear none of it. He bore it all. And by grace, we have been saved now, Lord. We thank you for that. Would you make us glad, Lord, not only that we have been saved from the wrath, but Lord, make us glad to live in a way that is pleasing to you, that we might have the opportunity to speak of the hope that's within us. Because, Father, we look around the world and we do. We witness people who are running from terror to fall into a pit, who climb out of a pit to be caught in a snare through so many different ways in the world around us. Lord, would you, we need to speak of the hope that's within us. Would you give us opportunities? And then when we have them, would you give us eyes to see them? And then when we see them, would you give us courage to carry through? And then would you give us faith in the moment that you will give us the words to say? Lord, that others might see and taste and know that you're good and they might understand the deliverance that is theirs in Christ Jesus, the hope of restoration. Lord, enable us to live our lives as unto you. May we not be tempted to fall into the idolatrous practices of our own hearts where we set up idol after idol, things that we put our confidence in and we worship and adore. May we not be tempted to find... um, our identity or worth and our own uh, abilities, knowledge, or possessions in the form of pride the way Moab did. But Lord, may we look to you and may we come with empty hands, trusting in Christ alone, knowing that we are loved as your children so that we might live unto you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.